0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on FM 98.5, CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us to listen to a few reflections from the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television, millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations offered today will touch your heart and truly show you that your life is worth living. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning to... Listen to a couple of good bishops. You just listen to the wisdom of Bishop Robert Barron as he explained for the Word of God and especially to our Sunday readings. And now you will listen to Bishop Fulton J. Sheen as he talks about the yearnings of the pre-Christian world and that Christ was foretold. And so this is the beauty is that, uh, you know, when people ask, why do you believe, well, His coming was prophesied. Uh, Nobody made a prophecy about Buddha coming or Muhammad coming. But uh, again, Christ was foretold. And so Sheen beautifully talks about the yearnings of the pre-Christian world. And we'll continue our catechism series together. We're on lesson number six. And we're going to go through the 50 lessons together over the course of the year. And so uh, this lesson is on Christ being foretold. And so we're going to really enjoy uh, the wisdom of the Venerable Sheen this morning. And uh, so everyone have a great day and uh, sit back and relax and enjoy this session of Sunday School with the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: Friends, during the past week there was a sailor who sent a telegram to the captain of a ship saying, I just met an angel who will report in 72 hours. And the captain of the ship sent back a wire saying, send the angel to Bishop Sheen, you report immediately. And not very long ago, our good friend Milton Burroughs said, uh, both Bishop Sheen and I use old material. But tonight I'm going to use much older material than he could ever delve into. You know, someone every now and then boasts that I have an absolutely new idea. There are three answers to that. One is, treat it kindly as in a strange place. The other is, beginner's luck. And the third and good answer is, go back and see how the Greeks put it. And tonight we're going back to see how the Greeks put it, and how all the ancients put it. Very often a child, of course, when Christmas season comes around, will look forward with anticipation to that feast what happens in the mind of a child has actually happened to the whole human race. And tonight we're going to make a survey of a thousand years of pre-Christian history, and we will delve into the yearnings and the hopes and the aspirations and anticipations of some of the great people of the past. We will begin with the Greeks, going back I say a thousand years before the Christian era. Then we will discuss some of the Eastern people, then the Romans and their civilization, and finally the civilization of the Hebrews. Each in turn. First of all, the yearning and anticipation of the Greeks. One of the greatest epic poets who ever lived. Was Homer. And Homer wrote two great works, one called the Iliad and the other the Odyssey. The Iliad was the story of a defeated king. And the Odyssey, the story of a sorrowful woman. The real hero of the Iliad was not Achilles, but the defeated king Hector. Achilles, clad in the armor of the god Vulcan, defeated Hector and then dragged his body after his chariot. And then one night, aged Priam, the father, went into the tent of the victor. And the poem ends with the glorification of the king who went down to defeat Then he also wrote the Odyssey. The story of Odyssey, who was traveling around the world for twenty years. While he was away, his wife was courted by many suitors. And many of them asked to marry her, and she said, when she finished weaving this particular garment, that she would then decide on a suitor. The suitors did not know that each night Penelope undid the stitches which he put in in the daytime and remained faithful until Odyssey returned. And the poem was the glorification of this tragic woman whom Homer called the most sorrowful woman and into the current of Greek literature was thrown the story of a king who was made great in defeat And the woman who was sad and not anyone understood the meaning of that until a thousand years later when a king would be defeated and still be victorious and the sorrowful woman would be benign and worthy of veneration and respect. And then coming 600 years before the Christian era, we come to the great dramatist, Aeschylus. We spoke about his Prometheus Bound uh, last week. And in this story, you remember Prometheus is bound to a rock. He has stolen fire from heaven, and an eagle comes and devours his entrails. Maybe a symbol of modern man, not whose entrails are being devoured by an eagle, but whose mind and heart are uneasy. Devoured, as it were, by anxieties, and fears, and neuroses, and psychoses. And that throughout these years that I am describing, these thousands of years, there was this yearning for some kind of deliverance from guilt. Some plea for a great wisdom that might come. And finally, Hermes speaks to Prometheus and says, Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse until some god appears accept upon his head the pangs of thy own sins thy cavernous. A few centuries later the great Socrates and in the second dialogue with Alcibiades we read that one day Alcibiades was about to go into the temple and he came to Socrates, the wise man and he said, what shall I ask of the gods? And Socrates said, wait Wait, he said, for a wise man who is to come, who will tell us how we are to conduct ourselves before God and man. Now Tobiades said, I'm most anxious to know this man. When will he come? Socrates said, I know not. But certainly not until the fog has been cleared away from our minds. Now Tobiades said, And I desire to do everything that he wills. And Socrates said, and he wills good things for you. This is the current of Greek literature. Man looking for another wisdom than the earthly, some kind of relief from his inner guilt. And then we come to the Eastern peoples. And these great religions of the East that we hear so little about, great indeed they are in the natural order. For example, Hinduism. The Hindus desired some kind of what they called an avatar, namely one of their many gods that might come down to this earth. Like a Krishna, would be a kind of a god becoming a man. Like the god Gita, becoming a brother. But most of all, the great Brahma, who would come to save man from Kaliga, the serpent of evil. And then the great Confucius, the wisdom of China. Confucius said, the true wise man will come from above and he will have all power in heaven and on earth. And then more remarkable still, Buddha. One day he was talking to his, the six centuries before Christ, he was talking to his friend, Ananda, And he said to Ananda, I am not the light. There will be other Buddhas beside me. The kingdom of truth will not come for 500 years. And then will come the true Buddha, whose name will be Matriya, which will mean love. And this current of expectation that we find in the Greeks, that we find in the Eastern people, and their sacrifices, for example, pouring out blood as if blood in some way had been associated with guilt, and they felt that by releasing that they might release their own guilt. All of this was the yearning. But then comes more remarkable yearning still, the Romans. The great Latin writer, like Suetonius, Cicero, Tacitus. Remember how hard Tacitus was in college? And Tacitus writes that there is a universal belief that the great wise man will come from Judea. And Suetonius, writing at the beginning of the Christian era, said that the time that was foretold by the Sibyls—they were some of the prophets of these pagan peoples—the time foretold by the Sibyls, the one thousand saculum of Apollo has come. And Cicero arose one day, and in one of those great, magnificent orations, he said, we are told, he said, by the Sibyls. that we must accept a king who alone can save us. But he said, I ask the civils, and then, Cicero put it, in quem hominem. In other words, in what man who will he be, and at what time, in quem hominem. Maybe another Roman answered Cicero the day that this other Roman said H.A. Homo, behold the man. And greater still, Virgil. Virgil in his fourth echologue Here he was quoting the Sibyls, particularly the Sibyl of Cuma. In his fourth eclogue, he wrote The last day foretold by Cuma's seer is come. The mighty roll of generations new is now reborn. Justice now returns. And from high heaven descends a worthier race of men. Smile, chaste Lutina. Taste, Lucina, smile on thy infant boy. Then this famous line, then of Virgil, Inchipe, begin, little boy, Harvey Puer, begin, little boy, resume with a smile, cognoscere to know thy mother. That written in the year 31 B.C. in the fourth eclogue of Virgil. Now, as these expectations multiply, we come to the greatest of them all. And the greatest of them all, of course, is that of the Hebrews. You remember that the great Hebrew civilization was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in the year 586. Nebuchadnezzar took back with him into Babylon. One who was called the wisest and the most handsome of the Jews. His name was Daniel. And the Book of had a dream one night, and the dream that he had, he was unable to interpret, nor any of his, any of his wisdom. And I wish I could draw you something like under which that he saw. But I can't draw, so tonight I'm going to ask my angel very quickly to do a drawing on the blackboard for me. And that'll save me a lot of trouble, and then you will know later on what I'm talking about. So my little angel will do the drawing. It only takes a second for an angel to do a drawing. And there it is. This this is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar the king. He saw a great and tremendous colossal. See how big he is. These are men down here. And the head was of gold. And the shoulders and arms were of silver. The thighs were of brass. And the legs and the feet of iron and clay. And a great stone hewn from the mountain without hands came down from the mountains and crushed at this statue and struck it at the feet of clay and ground it into dust. What was the meaning of it? The sages could not tell. It was one with all of this expectation of the world for a thousand years. Daniel interpreted and he said, these are the kingdoms that will divide the world until the coming of the Expectatio Gentium, the coming of the expected one of the world. The empire of gold, he said is you, Babylon. You will fall. You will be devoured by the empire of silver, the empire of silver by the empire of brass, the empire of brass by the empire of iron and clay. And in the year 536, Cyrus of the Medes and Persians came to this great fortified city of Babylon, 16 miles square, 16 gates of solid bronze, giving entrance to it. He turned aside the waters of the Euphrates that ran through the center, and then went out of the dry bed of the river, and that night Balthasar was slain at his feet, and the empire of gold was devoured by the empire of silver. Then there came the beginning now of a new empire, the empire of Brass, which was that of Greece. And there arose a young man, only twenty years of age, one of the greatest generals the world ever knew, Alexander. And he went out to do battle with one of the successors of Cyrus Darius III. And one night, one of his lieutenants came to him, and he said, the army is asleep. can you will win, and think of it. Alexander said it is not fair to fight at night, he waited until daytime. And then in the first great war between Europe and Asia, Alexander won and the great civilizations now began to pour westward over all of Europe, beginning with Greece. Alexander died at the age of 33 with no more worlds to conquer. And there arose short time after that the new empire which was Rome, the empire that was commanded over for the time being by Consul Mummius who defeated the outposts of the Grecian power in Corinth, near 146 B.C. They said that for ten days they burned the city of Corinth. The soldiers of Rome used to use the great works of art as their target. Finally, Rome was master of the world. There was only one official language in the world. It was Latin. There was only one capital in the world, it was pagan Rome. There was only one emperor, and it was Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus sits at his desk along the banks of the Tiber, and before him is a map labeled Orbs Ferrarum. Imperium Romanum, the circle of the earth, the Roman Empire. The whole world was his. He decided to take up a census. The temple of James, which he could see from his window, was closed. The temple that was opened generally in times of war in order to pray for successive arms might now have been clogged with bodies, but in any case, there was peace. Therefore, the census, and out to every governor, out to every satrap, out to every province, out to every tetrach, goes the order. Everyone, everyone enroll in his own city. Tens of thousands of people set in motion, all over the world, obeying the mandate of a single man. Little did he know that he, this imperial bookkeeper of the Tiber, it was actually fulfilling a prophecy that was made by the great Hebrew Matthias five hundred years before, and now Bethlehem art the least of the cities. And out to thee will he come forth who will be the captain. Notice we finally posted the tree in a little village of Nazareth, a village carpenter and a maid, read it, and since they belong to the defunct royalty, namely the defunct royalty of the family of David, whose city was Bethlehem, they had to journey to Bethlehem. And to Bethlehem, they go. There was no room in the inn. The inn is the gathering place of public opinion. So after the stables they go. And there rings out a cry. A gentle cry. The cry of a newborn babe. The sea could not hear the cry, for the sea was filled with its own voice. The great ones of the earth could not hear the cry, for they could not understand how a God could be greater than a man. Shepherds and wise men came and they saw a babe. A babe whose tiny hands were not quite long enough to touch the huge heads of the cattle, and yet hands that were steering the reins that keep the sun and moon and stars in their courses. Baby lips that did not speak. Baby lips that might have articulated the secrets of every living man that hour. And under that brow was beating a mind and an intelligence compared to which The combined intelligences of Europe and America are not for Baby feet that did not walk, not just because they were baby feet, but because those baby feet could not bear the weight of divine omnipotence, eternity in time, omnipotence in bonds, God in the form of man—the bird that built the nest, its heart therein. The yearnings of Buddha, Confucius, of Aeschylus, of Virgil, of Socrates, of Plato—all of these yearnings were now realized, along with the sibyls, at this particular moment, when there is born the one who may. For us, the feast of Christmas. A child in a foul stable. the wild beast's feed and foe. Only for he was homeless. For you and I. At home. In she pain. poor, for Begin, little Tyre, to recognize thy mother with a smile. Not bless
0: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, one 866 357 4336 again one eight six six, three five seven, four three three six, and on the web www.bishopsheen.com and on behalf of bishop sheen god love you good sunday morning to you all you're listening to fm 98.5 ckwr I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning to listen to the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. That recording we just heard was from his television series, Life is Worth Living, from the 1950s, and it was from that series that uh, Bishop Sheen won an Emmy Award for the most outstanding personality on television, and I've been glad to share, of course, his uh, many recordings for... Uh, seven years now here on the radio, and uh, it's funny how time flies as we celebrate this seventh anniversary, and uh, I remember that day coming into the radio station on a Monday evening, and uh, the phone lines lit up, and uh, what a great blessing to know that Bishop Sheen is still touching lives so many years after his death. I am touched by the many stories that listeners share with me As I travel across the country and uh, I'm amazed of how many people had a personal encounter with Bishop Sheen, either meeting him in person or having one of his uh, books or lectures touch the lives of a family member. So again, he continues to do it year in and year out. And I know by sharing uh, the writings of Fulton Sheen uh, with the book that I put together uh, called The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, Uh, every day there's an email sent to me uh, saying how somebody was affected by that book. And so uh, great to see that Bishop Sheen continues to bring souls to Christ. And uh, hopefully you've got your copy of The Cries of Jesus from the Cross. Uh, It'd be a great Lenten companion for you to read throughout the season of Lent. And uh, the book is a good size, and um, by just reading 10 minutes a day, you can complete the book over the 45 days of Lent. So uh, not a hard read by any means, and you will become closer to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, after you're finished the book. And So uh, available, of course, Amazon.ca, and uh, through uh, the publisher, Sophia Institute Press. Uh, there's a bunch of links on my website at bishopsheen.today.com, and uh, those links will direct you how to get the book. And uh, you could always just uh, email me, and I can get a mail a copy out to you. So uh, again, it's amazing. There's lots of options, lots of choices. And if you'd like me to come to your parish, by all means, I'd love to come and give a reflection uh, about the, the cries of Jesus from the cross. I don't, I don't think we meditate enough on our lord's seven last words the i like to say the sermon from mount calvary and so just email me and i'd love to come out and help your parish with a reflection and uh let's see uh it was number 1 on amazon last week again uh it goes uh, amazon's a funny um, uh vehicle and they have so many different categories and so the book has hit number 1 in about three or four different categories uh, last week, it was number one in books on Christology. And about three weeks ago, it was number one on death and grieving. And so, uh, again, all these different categories, but still, it's a great book. And so it will help you, of course, uh, draw closer to Christ through his great love for us that he died on the cross. And he left us these seven last words as a great sermon to uh, guide our lives. And so uh, Bishop Sheen talks about the Beatitudes, the virtues, the sorrows. Uh, he gives a full catechesis in this book. And so, again, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, From it's called Fulton Sheen Anthology. Uh, it's actually seven little books in one, and available through Amazon.ca, uh, or through the website BishopSheenToday.com, or Sophia Institute Press. All right, Uh, we are here to continue our catechism series. And so Bishop Sheen will give us a lesson entitled Christ Foretold. And it is uh, lesson number six of a 50-part series that he gave back in 1965. And people have been enjoying it ever since. So please sit back and relax and enjoy this uh, 25-minute presentation entitled Christ Foretold. Please enjoy.
2: Peace be to you. Throughout the course of history, there have been many who have appeared upon its stage and declared that they came from God and were messengers of God. At this stage of our inquiry, each and every one of them has a right to be heard. There's no reason why we should pick out Christ at this particular moment, any more than anyone else. But we do, however, have a right to suggest certain tests or standards by which each of these claimants can be judged. We simply cannot allow anyone to appear upon the stage of history and say, Here I am. Believe me. Or, This is a book which an angel gave me. I want you to read it. It comes from God. When we start a discussion of revealed religion, we are never to abdicate human reason, nor are we ever to lose sight of the fact that we are in history. Therefore, one of the arguments that we will use is what might be called the argument of prophecy or prediction. Namely, has any one of the claimants ever been pre-announced? or foretold. Certainly the least that God could do if he sends a messenger to this earth is to say, I pre-announce him. I am going to let you know that he is coming. Our friends do that when they come to visit us. Appointments are made in business. And certainly God should let us know that his Messiah or Christ or his divine son is coming to this earth. Now it might be argued but there are many other great world religions and we should investigate them. That is true. But it must not be thought that these world religions, such as Buddhism and Confucianism and the like, are not in any way related to Christianity. There are many myths in history. There are many great men like Buddha and Confucius and Socrates and so forth. It could very well be, we are not yet proving it, it could very well be that each and every one of them is something like a Oh, like a bird that prepares a nest before the bird lays eggs. After all, the bird does not know as you and I know in anticipation what it's going to do. It's governed solely by instinct. But as the bird prepares a nest for its eggs, so providence has prepared in some way for the coming of a perfect revelation, After all, divine truth might be looked upon as a circle. There is not a religion in the world, I care not what it is, even though it is one that is starting this afternoon in Los Angeles or New York or Paris, that does not have some segment of the circle of truth. It may be only two percent. But at any rate it is part of the circle. Now some would have more degrees than others of this complete circle of truth. Some might have 20 degrees, 50 degrees, 150 degrees and so forth. So that we recognize what is good in every single religion. And then too as we will suggest later on, some of them are yearning for a Redeemer. Or it may be argued that there are likenesses in all religions. Therefore, they are all very much the same. It is true First of all, that there are natural truths that are the same. This is bound to be simply because every human being in the world has reason. So he's he's bound to arrive also at certain conclusions in the ethical order which will guide both himself and society. We are therefore not to be surprised that many of the ethical principles are the same, but to argue that all religions have similarities and therefore have the same cause, namely the dreams of mankind. It's quite untrue. When you go into a picture gallery, you will notice that every one of the paintings has certain basic colors. Simply because they have the same colors, you do not conclude, therefore they were painted by the same artist. Simply because there are similarities in religions, we are not therefore to argue that therefore man made them all. Then, too, there are truths that are above human reason, namely, revealed truths. And this is the subject of this particular discussion namely, God chose to make an historical revelation. And we are arguing that the one who came, Christ, as the founder of Christianity, was pre-announced. We have to prove that. There are other differences, too, which we might mention before we come to the argument of prophecy, namely that the founder of no other religion is absolutely essential for that religion in the same way that Christ is essential for Christianity. True, the founder was necessary for the founding. But the believer in a particular religion does not enter into the same kind of an encounter as a Christian enters into an encounter with Christ. It is the personal relationship to him which is decisive. So Christ, therefore, occupies a different place in Christianity than Buddha does in Buddhism, than Confucius in Confucianism, Mohammed in Islamism, and even Moses in Judaism. Buddhism does not demand that you believe in Buddha, but that you become an enlightened one. That is, that you follow his teachings concerning the suppression of desires. Confucianism does not demand an intimate relation with Confucius. What is important are the ethical precepts. And anyone who follows those precepts is presumed to enter into peace with his ancestors. Moses did not demand that men believe in him but that they put their trust in the Lord God. He was not pointing to himself. Islamism demands faith in God and the other four tenets but not necessarily in Mohammed. When you come to Christ here Christianity demands a personal Intimate bond. We have to be one with him. And one with him in a way in which we cannot in any way claim to be Christian unless we reflect the person, the mind, the will, the heart, and the humanity of Christ. The argument from prophecy is really very simple. Just ask yourself if any founder of a world religion or any innovator of a modern religion was ever pre-announced. His own mother could not have pre-announced Five years before his birth, his exact birth, no one knew that Buddha was coming. Or Confucius. Or Mohammed. But all through the centuries, there was some dim expectation that Christ himself was coming. It is in this that the argument of prophecy consists. Now, this prophecy argument involves two points. It involves history, and secondly, it involves a person. Christianity is an historical religion. Notice that in the Creed, whenever we speak of our blessed Lord, we always say, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. In other words, he's fixed at a very definite point in world history. No other founder of a world religion was ever so bound up with history as he was. We're not just concerned with the fact that he was born and suffered under Pontius Pilate, but rather with the whole background of history. In the Old Testament, which we are not considering here as inspired, but only a record of documents, in the Old Testament, we find that God seems to be making a covenant, a treaty, a pact, or a testament with humanity, small group within humanity we find this in the very beginning that god has it, enters into a treaty or a pact with adam it involves all humanity adam was the head whatever he did we did and later on god enters into a testament and a covenant with noah In these testaments and covenants, there are always promises and agreements on both sides. If one party remained moral, that was the human side, God on the divine side, will give them blessings. Now, from the moment of the very first covenant and its breaking. God said that there would come the seed of a woman who would undo the work of evil. Now this tradition is caught up not only among the Jews, but particularly among the prophets. After the treaty with Noah, God enters into a new treaty with Abraham, whom he calls from the land of Ur. he promises Abraham, I am going to make you the founder of a people who will be the people of God. Through this people will come the Savior and the Redeemer and the conqueror of evil, who is was promised after the fall of Adam. Abraham is also told that the people of God would come from him first, Israel be as numerous as the sands of the sea. Later on, these people are led into bondage in Egypt. A new treaty, pact, covenant is made with Moses. They break it. it is renewed again. And Then finally, there begin to come now prophets, And these prophets say that into this people of God there will one day come a Savior and a Redeemer. Here now we are speaking not just about a people that continue a tradition, who have an expectation of a Savior, but we are speaking now of many details that were given concerning that particular person. We will not go into all of the prophecies that are mentioned. They are too many. You can readily get hold of a book which will tell you about the many prophecies that were made concerning our blessed Lord. For example, that uh, he would be a member of the tribe of Judah, he would be born of a virgin. And I think one of the very astounding prophecies of Micaeus was that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. If you were predicting the birth of someone who would be a kind of a great world politician, you would certainly choose a big city. But lo and behold, the prophet Micaeus, under divine inspiration, chooses the tiny little village of Bethlehem which is called the least of the cities. And he says that out of that city will come forth the one that is to be the ruler of Israel. And centuries, many centuries before his coming, it was foretold that he would be meek and humble of heart, that he would be the suffering servant, that he would be God as well as man. And above all his suffering. Sometime pick up the Old Testament. Turn to chapter 53. And read there the prophecy of Isaiah concerning the death and the sufferings of Christ. That he would be reputed with the wicked, for example, in his death, which indeed he was, because he was crucified between two thieves, that he would be laid in a stranger's grave, which indeed he was. It almost seems as if the prophecy of Isaiah were written at the foot of the cross. Then take the many prophecies concerning him as coming from the royal line of David, That meant that for about a thousand years there had to be a male descendant in every single descendant from David in order to have a fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, that's very difficult. Take, for example, a great character like Abraham Lincoln. He had four children. But even in the short span of history since his death, there is not a single male descendant of Abraham Lincoln alive today. No one else ever made a prophecy about the founders of world religions. It's only about Christ. A Jewish scholar who became a Christian and who knew very well the Old Testament and all of the traditions of the Jews, said that at the time of Christ, rabbis had gathered together 456 prophecies concerning the Messiah, the Christ, the conqueror of evil, who was to be born of that long line of Israel and who was to enter into a new covenant with mankind. 456 prophecies. Suppose the chances of any one prophecy, like the place that he would be born, was one in a hundred. That is to say, it had that chance of being fulfilled. Then if two prophecies were fulfilled, the chances would be one in a thousand. If three prophecies were to coincide in Christ, that would be one in ten thousand. If four, one in a hundred thousand. If five, one in a million. Now, if all of these prophecies were fulfilled in Christ, what would be the chance of them all concurring at the appointed moment, not only in place, but also in time, as was foretold by the prophet Daniel? Well, if you take a pencil, write on a sheet of paper, one, and draw a line beneath it. Then under the line, write 84, And after 84, if you have time, write 126 zeros. Now, that is the chance of all of the prophecies of Christ being fulfilled. See, it runs into millions and millions, trillions and trillions. And then it was not only question of the Jews foretelling that Christ was to come. There were many other prophecies too that were not among the Jews but certainly the Jews simply because they were in servitude among the other peoples of the world had passed on their traditions. For example Confucius said that he was expecting some great wise man from the east. Buddha said he was not the wise man. Someone else was to come. The great Plato said that a just man was to come, would tell us how we are to conduct ourselves before God and men. The Greek dramatists had always felt that there was some God to come, as Aeschylus put it in his work Prometheus. Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse. Until some God appears. To accept upon his head pangs of our own sins. In other words, he would bear our sins. And to Socrates, expected someone else, someone whom he called a just man. And Virgil, remember the fourth Eclogue of Virgil? And has been sometimes called the Messianic Echologue because he asked a virgin smile on thy infant boy with whom the Iron Age will pass away, golden age. And when Christ appeared, he said, I am the one whom the prophets foretold. In other words, I'm not just coming here on the stage of history. You have heard of me before. That is one of the reasons why, for example, Herod was not surprised that the Messiah was born. The rabbis told him, they knew the prophecies. He knew he was to be a king, the new king of mankind. Therefore, he wanted to kill him. And then when our blessed Lord had reached the age of about 30, he one day he walked into his synagogue of Nazareth. And the clerk of the synagogue handed him as the village carpenter a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he began to read off a passage of Isaiah's about what the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ would be like. Namely, his meekness, his gentleness, how he would bind up wounds, how he would forgive, how he would release captives. The audience listened with rapt attention. Then he said, This day is sacred scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Savior of the world. No one else can claim this back. Christ alone, we study. The others, we say, step aside. From now on, my heart and my soul will be absorbed in him who was pre-announced.
0: good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this edition of Sunday School with the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, I know he continues to bring me closer to Christ and His Church. And um, again, uh, knowing that He was, Christ was foretold. And uh, again, this beautiful, uh, undeniable fact—you know—that uh, history will teach us that Jesus did come. You know, there's people that still believe that He never actually came into the world; uh, that it's a myth; that it's just a, a you know, a story made up. Uh, But again, history proves that Jesus did come into this world. He did die on the cross, and he rose again so that we could be with him forever in paradise. And, you know, I think of that good thief on the cross when our Lord looked to him. He says, this day you will be with me in paradise. And hopefully one day each and every one of us will hear those same words, that we will be with the Lord one day in paradise. And so everyone, have a great week. Again, if you want me to come and speak at your parish for a lantern Reflection, love to do that. Just contact me through the website bishopsheentoday.com or you'll find me on Facebook. You know, (laughs) I always have a face for radio but most people know what I look like. Uh, You can always find me as Al the Gas Man uh, but still, some way, somehow you'll find me. So until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. I'll see you in two hours as I come back to lead us in prayer with the Holy Rosary. And until that time, God love you.